Thank you for downloading our audio tour. If you really want the complete experience of this tour, you should check out pictures, videos, and the other extras you can find in our free app. Download our free easy travel app for iOS, Android, Windows Phone, and Google Glass now, or visit Easy Travel for more information. You will exit onto Baker Street from the Tube Station. Please turn right and proceed along the street. Our first destination is 221B Baker Street, the official residence of the legendary detective. This is the third last building on your left, just before Baker Street ends. Baker Street is named after William Baker, the builder who constructed this road in the 1700s. From its early residential setting, the street is now primarily made of commercial properties. Over the years, the street has been home to quite a collection of interesting people and organisations. Long before Arthur Conan Doyle wrote his first Sherlock novel, the street already had a bit of a connection with mystery due to the Druce Portland case. The case revolved around the claim that the former manager of Baker Street Bazaar was in fact an alter ego of the 5th Duke of Portland and had faked his death to return to his secluded aristocratic life. During the Second World War, the street was also home to the Special Operations Executive, a secretive organisation formed by the British government to conduct espionage, sabotage and reconnaissance missions. Due to the popularity of the Sherlock novels, the locals often called them the Baker Street Irregulars. The Sherlock Holmes Museum was made by the Sherlock Holmes International Society in 1990 and is the most authentic representation of the famous detective's residence. The Gregorian-style building was selected because of its resemblance to Doyle's descriptions of Sherlock's flat. Inside, there is a full replica of Holmes's flat with Victorian-style furnishings and an assortment of the detective's possessions. Unlike other replicas around the world, the museum also has Dr. Watson's second-floor bedroom, making the apartment much more authentic than the others. Visitors are allowed to freely tour the residence and are permitted to take pictures. The ground floor also has a souvenir shop which you can visit. This street is the place where Arthur Conan Doyle took writing seriously for the first time. Doyle had an eye surgery clinic at 2 Devonshire Place. However, patients were few and Doyle spent most of his time writing his stories. According to his autobiography, Doyle said that not a single patient crossed his door. The building is now known as Conan Doyle's house and is in use as a dental clinic. It is the last door to your left before the intersection. After taking a brief look at the building, please continue walking down the street. Doyle's second house is just down the block. This second house saw his career gain momentum and the ultimate fame of his Sherlock Holmes stories. Doyle attributed his love for storytelling to his mother. In his biography, he said, In my early childhood, as far as I can remember anything at all, 
The vivid stories she would tell me stand out so clearly that they obscure the real facts of my life. It was in boarding school that he first took to writing his own stories. As a mental escape from the harsh corporal punishments that were the norm in British schools at the time, his first Sherlock story, A Study in Scarlet, was published by Ward, Locke & Co. in 1886. However, Doyle was unhappy with the publishers and left them to write for the Strand magazine. At this time, Doyle had moved to his second house at 2 Upper Wimpole Street. This is the second last door on your left before the intersection. The Westminster City Council has placed a plaque at the door to allow visitors to identify it. Interestingly, this house is also in use as a dental clinic. Although you cannot visit the interior as a tourist, physically seeing the building which saw the birth of the revolutionary character of Holmes is a must for any true fan of the detective. With the success of his writing career, he discontinued his medical career and devoted all of his time to his incredible stories. As we continue the rest of the tour and delve into the amazing world of Sherlock, keep in mind that this house was where it all began in the first place. We will now continue to our next attraction. Please turn around and walk back to the Marylebone Road Junction. To your left, you will spot the familiar banner of Speedy's Cafe. This is the iconic location of Sherlock Holmes' apartment in the famous BBC series. The location was chosen by the production team after a very meticulous search all across London. Both Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss are very attentive to each detail of the show, and the choice for the detective's residence was extremely important. The section of North Gower Street that they chose bears a close resemblance to Baker Street's Gregorian-style buildings. The brickwork also hints at the 19th century era, when the stories were originally written by Conan Doyle. The building gives a balanced mix of old and modern times, making for a renewed yet nostalgic setting for Sherlock's apartment. The Speedy Café is a family-run business, and despite the great popularity, has not fallen into commercial deals. The cafe was portrayed as Mrs. Hudson's Snacks in the pilot, but retained its original name and sunshade for the final broadcast. As most of the interior filming takes place in a studio, the apartment isn't the actual place where the interior scenes are filmed. The flat is a private property and not open to visitors. However, Speedy's Cafe is more than welcome to open its doors to you and offer you great food at all times of the day. Since the interior of the cafe was featured in the A Scandal in Belgravia episode of Series 2, Speedy's owners added special attractions for the hundreds of Sherlock fans that began to arrive at its doorstep. The cafe features special items on its menu. When the show started to gain popularity, the Great Detective Wrap was introduced. It combined the sharp taste of cheddar with chilli sauce, hinting at Sherlock's personality. As the show became more famous, 
Speedy's created a fan competition for creating a sandwich in honor of John Watson. The winning recipe features roasted vegetables, brie cheese and sour cream, suggesting Watson's generally warm and supportive personality, but with a hint of adventure. In addition to food, visitors can also pick from a variety of merchandise available for sale, including t-shirts, mugs and phone cases. These souvenirs will be a great reminder of your visit to the iconic restaurant. Unlike several other Sherlock-themed attractions, Speedy's Cafe has retained its original charm and has the same feel as seen on screen. The owners have not made any additions to make the place feel touristy. The only hint towards it being a Sherlock icon is the Speedy's name itself and a candid collection of photos inside the cafe from the filming sessions. This is the filming location of Sherlock Holmes's suicide. The building to your left behind the ambulance station is where Sherlock jumped from, while John Watson was standing in front of it talking to him on the phone. Moriarty's last conversation with Sherlock was filmed on the roof of this building. The subsequent episode of Series 3 included several variations of Sherlock's jump and thus heavily featured the rooftop. The many scenes where Sherlock jumps from the roof were shot on location and not in a studio. The production team installed a crane on the building's roof and Benedict Cumberbatch was suspended using thin ropes to film the jump. Please walk to the other side of the ambulance station to get a clearer view of the building. You will be able to easily recognize the spot where Sherlock impacts the pavement after his jump. The building which Sherlock jumped from is part of St. Bart's Hospital. Unfortunately, the interior of the building and the roof are closed to the public. In addition to Sherlock's fall, St. Bart's Hospital has been an important part of the series in several episodes. It is where the detective met Dr. Watson for the first time through a friend and where he does the majority of his forensic investigations. Sherlock's first meeting with Moriarty, where Molly introduces him as her boyfriend to Sherlock, also takes place inside St. Bart's. These interior scenes for St. Bart's were not actually filmed at the hospital. The production crew chose a chemistry lab in Cardiff for almost all of St. Bart's interior scenes. This isn't surprising as the hospital is incredibly busy at all times and is not feasible as a filming location for interior scenes. Apart from being featured in Sherlock, St. Bart's itself is famous for being the oldest hospital in all of England. The building has survived the Great Fire of London and the extensive bombardments of the city during the Second World War. The hospital no longer has an emergency department and is largely a research and teaching institution which focuses on cardiac and cancer treatments. With the St. Bart's building to your left, please proceed forward down the street. We will now be visiting the Old Bailey Criminal Court. You will be able to spot the dome of the court ahead of you. Also known as the Central Criminal Court, the Old Bailey is the most iconic courthouse in the world. It is part of the Crown Court 
and hosts major criminal cases from London and often from Greater England and Wales. The existence of the court can be traced back to medieval times. The first building was destroyed in the Fire of London and was rebuilt a decade later. The original building had an open design to prevent the spread of diseases which were common in those times. The current building was constructed in 1902 and was designed by E. W. Mountford, the famous English architect known for his Edwardian Baroque style. During the Second World War, the building was heavily targeted by the Blitz. Reconstruction work was carried out in the 1950s and the court was open to the public again. The interior of the main hall is decorated with artwork commemorating the Blitz and several scenes of St Paul's Cathedral. There are also statues of British monarchs and important legal figures. The lower level of the court includes a small exhibition about the history of the Old Bailey Court and the Newgate Prison that originally stood at the site. The original entrance of the courts is now only used for royalty and the Lord Mayor. The general entrance is near the South Block, which is just the next building. Like other courthouses, the Old Bailey is open to the public. There are no entry charges. Visitors can attend any of the trials from the public galleries after a security check. Children below 14 years of age are not allowed in the viewing galleries. Please proceed inside the courthouse to look around. In Sherlock, the famous trial of Jim Moriarty was conducted at the Old Bailey. The crucial trial sees Moriarty being tried for breaking into the Tower of London, opening the Bank of England's vault and unlocking Pentonville Prison. Although the exterior of the Old Bailey Court was used, the interior shots were filmed at separate locations. The courtroom scenes were filmed in Swansea Guildhall and the holding cells were actually from the Roth Police Station in Cardiff. St Paul's Cathedral was an important filming location for Guy Ritchie's 2009 Sherlock film starring Robert Downey Jr. The impressive architecture of the cathedral gives the movie the distinctive feel of the English Baroque style. A number of scenes were filmed inside the cathedral, most notable of which were those on the spiral staircase. The cathedral is open to visitors from 8.30am to 4 o'clock and is sometimes closed for holidays and special events. Entry costs about £16.50 for adults and £7.50 for children. The cathedral was founded on this site in 604 AD. The current structure is from the 17th century and was designed by Sir Christopher Wren, one of the most acclaimed English architects in history. Several iconic buildings in London have been originally designed by Wren, including the Kensington Palace and Hampton Court Palace. The cathedral itself occupies a very central position in English national identity and is featured on almost all iconic representations of London, including postcards and promotional material. Important historic services include those after World Wars I and II, the Jubilee celebrations for Queen Victoria, the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana, and the funerals of Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher.
Designing the imposing structure was a big challenge for the architect. Wren had to create a building that would serve as a place of worship and yet be an iconic landmark. This meant pleasing a large body of judges. In addition, the weak clay soil posed further structural challenges. The impressive structure of the cathedral is the result of innovative modifications made by Wren to satisfy all the conditions. It is for this reason that St Paul's Cathedral is so attractive to movie production teams trying to portray 18th and 19th century Britain on screen. Inside, you will be amazed by the breathtaking interior of the cathedral. The price of admission includes multimedia guides which will allow you to have a great experience looking around the interior. There is also an immersive film project located in the crypt. Known as the Interpretation Project, the virtual reality film gives you a very engaged story of St Paul's Cathedral. During the Second World War, the cathedral luckily survived the German bombardment of London. It was only struck twice, which resulted in damage to the high altar and the northern wing. The building did come under significant risk of destruction when a time-delayed bomb was dropped by the Luftwaffe. A team of bomb disposal experts from the Royal Engineers successfully managed to defuse the bomb. Their controlled detonation in a remote location demonstrated that the bomb would have totally destroyed the cathedral had it exploded. The mild damage to the building was repaired over a period of 15 years and was one of the largest restoration projects ever done in the UK. The project was only recently completed in 2011. Shortly afterwards, the Occupy London camp was set up in front of the cathedral, causing significant loss of revenue. Although the administration was not in favour of forcefully removing the protesters, the police cleared the camps months later following a legal action. The Museum of London contains comprehensive exhibits on the history of the City of London, from prehistoric times up until today. It contains several chronological galleries that tell the story of London through its major eras and the development of the city's culture and social life. After a major redevelopment project in 2010, the museum has been greatly overhauled and regularly features exhibits related to current trends and popular culture. From October 2014 to the 12th of April 2015, the museum will feature the Sherlock Holmes exhibition. Motivated by the immense popularity the detective has suddenly gained after the BBC Sherlock series. Tickets for the Sherlock exhibition are priced at £12 for adults and £9.50 for children. The exhibition will extensively cover the history of Arthur Conan Doyle's stories and includes a range of artwork, memorabilia and photographs. For any Sherlock fan, the exhibition will be a memorable lifetime experience. In a corner, you will spot the first piece ever written by Conan Doyle on The Detective. At that time, Doyle named him Sherinford Holmes and Watson Ormond Sacker. The handwritten document is the greatest Sherlock relic in the world. From that small piece grows the extensive exhibition around you,
with unending posters, and also the scarf worn by Cumberbatch from the Reichenbach Fall episode of the BBC series. Among the exhibits, there is also a Paddington bear dressed as Sherlock Holmes, designed by Benedict Cumberbatch himself. According to the star of the BBC series, he chose a typical British appearance for the bear. The Tower of London was featured in the Reichenbach Fall episode of Sherlock. The story sees Jim Moriarty breaking into the tower and accessing the crown jewels before allowing himself to be captured by the police. The flamboyant break-in by Moriarty at the Tower of London gave the show a boost of publicity and the scene has since become iconic in defining Moriarty's bold and unconventional criminal style. The filming of the scene did not actually take place at the tower because of the large number of tourists that visit it at every time of the day. The degree of filming needed for the series made it impossible to film the actual tower. In reality, the filming took place at the Cardiff Castle in Wales, which bears a close resemblance to the Tower of London in terms of style, material and structure. This allowed the production crew to freely shoot the scene of Moriarty smashing the casing of the crown jewels and his arrest by heavily armed police. Because of the accurate depiction in the TV show, you will not notice much difference between the actual tower and what you saw on screen in the Sherlock episode. Entry to the tower costs £20 for adults and £10 for children. Families are usually offered a discounted rate. Visitors are allowed all year from morning till sunset. The Tower of London is a World Heritage Site and was built in 1078 by William the Conqueror as part of the Norman Conquests. It served originally as a prison, although that role softened over time and it finally ended up being a museum housing the crown jewels. During the Second World War, the Tower of London was used as a prison and also saw a number of executions. The last execution was carried out in 1941, when a German spy was handed out the punishment of death by firing squad. A number of traditions of the tower retain its medieval feel. Ceremonial guardians, famously known as the Beef Eaters, can be seen roaming about, often with a raven or two. According to legend, the tower has six resident ravens which ensure the stability of the kingdom as long as they do not leave. Because of this reason, each raven has one of its wings clipped at the tip as a precaution. In relation to the Sherlock series, the main place to visit is the Waterloo Barracks, which houses the crown jewels. The tradition of keeping the crown jewels at the tower began during the time of Henry III. A special jewel house was built for the purpose. The jewels have had a fair share of attempted robbery, although not as dramatic as that by Moriarty. In 1671, Colonel Thomas Blood visited the tower disguised as a parson, along with a female accomplice. The accomplice faked a stomach illness and was invited by the master's wife into their home to recover. This gave Thomas the excuse to grow closer to the master's family and eventually attempt his robbery one night. However, the master's son walked in on the robbery and raised the alarm, and Thomas Blood was captured and the jewels recovered. Interestingly, just like Moriarty, 
Blood was cleared of all charges and pardoned by the king. The visitor's entrance to the Freemasons' Hall is along the left side of the building. The Freemasons' Hall was used for filming Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes movies. The scene where Blackwood holds a Masonic meeting was shot in the third vestibule of the building. Blackwood's throne can be seen between the huge bronze doors that open into the Grand Temple. In addition to the Sherlock movies, the hall has been featured in numerous other movies as well. Its unique Art Deco style gives the building a feel of power and authority. Freemasons Hall was designed by two British architects as a memorial to more than 3,000 Freemasons who lost their lives in service during World War I. The two-and-a-quarter-acre building was initially called the Masonic Peace Memorial and was renamed shortly after the Second World War broke out. Please enter the building through the Great Queen Street entrance. Freemasons Hall is open for visitors Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. There are no entry charges. The management offer hourly tours for visitors, usually with a small fee. On Saturday, visitors need to book tours ahead of their visit. The central structure of the Freemasons Hall is a grand temple. This large hall seats around 1,700 people and is 19 meters in height. Each bronze door at the entrances weighs more than a ton. On the ceiling, there is extensive mosaic work and numerous figures and symbols related to Freemasonry. Elsewhere in the hall, the same level of elaborate artwork can be seen. The Grand Hall also has a large pipe organ from Henry Willison's sons, the well-known British organ builders. Because of the Grand Hall's popularity as an event venue, it is regularly booked. However, visitors are allowed to tour the Grand Hall despite the bookings unless an event is currently in progress. In addition to the Grand Hall, there are about 23 other Masonic temples in the building. Each temple varies in size and decorations. Temple number 1 can seat up to 600 people, while temple number 23 only has a seating capacity of 25. Halls like temple number 10 are very popular among designers and brands for fashion events because of their ornate design and domed ceilings. Apart from these temples, there are numerous rooms used for administrative purposes, private meetings and logistics. The temples and the rooms are not open to the public due to the enormous demand for private bookings. Other than the Grand Hall, the Library and Museum of Freemasonry is the main place to visit for tourists. It includes an extensive archive of literature on Freemasonry and an outstanding collection of objects of Masonic design. The big LED signs at Piccadilly Circus are instantly recognisable from the opening credits montage of the Sherlock series on BBC. The clip of Piccadilly Circus has made it a symbol of the Sherlock series itself and is now well known among all viewers of the show. Piccadilly Circus was also featured in the third episode of the first series as the location of one of Moriarty's victims. Originally, the circus was a circular intersection, 
as the Latin term suggests. The current layout was the result of the addition of Shaftesbury Avenue in 1886. Piccadilly gets its name from a tailor, Robert Baker, who was famous for selling Piccadils, the peculiar lace collars that were famous in the 17th century. Although the official name was Portugal Street, Piccadilly soon became so popular that the name was officially changed when the intersection was being constructed in 1819. The junction is one of the busiest in London and is always packed with traffic and pedestrians. This makes it a perfect location for advertisements. Just like Times Square in New York, Piccadilly used to be full of neon signs advertising multinational companies. Over time, the number of electronic billboards reduced, with only one section remaining today. These six screens are now extremely valuable spots. The Coca-Cola Company has had a sign at Piccadilly since 1954, making it the oldest of them all. It gained the current position in 2003. TDK and McDonald's have also held spots on Piccadilly for more than 20 years. The latest addition has been Hyundai Motors, which purchased the space previously used by Sanyo in 2011. The Sanyo sign was the last neon advertisement at Piccadilly. The LED displays at Piccadilly make it possible to use the space for other purposes as well. In 2007, the space occupied by the Coca-Cola ad was used to screen a non-commercial film by Paul Atherton about the history of Piccadilly Circus and its lights. The LED banners are also occasionally used to display transport alerts such as delays and closures for the London Underground. You will recognise the building to your left, next to the column, as Diogenes Club from the BBC Sherlock series. In the original stories, Diogenes Club was co-founded by Mycroft as a place where elite individuals of London could do their reading without any interference from people around them. It was meant to be a place without any external distractions at all. It was several years later that writers started toying with the idea that Diogenes was not just a club, but a front for the British Secret Service. This led to several interesting takes on the club in subsequent material on Sherlock Holmes. The idea that the Diogenes Club was part of British intelligence was mainly popularised by the 1970 movie the private life of Sherlock Holmes. This made Diogenes Club a symbol of clandestine operations of the British government and it has been referenced in many recent TV shows as well. The writers of the BBC Sherlock series also preferred this approach toward the purpose of the Diogenes Club. It is shown as the location of Mycroft's secret office where he is able to avoid people and unnecessary interactions. The building used for the exterior shots of the Diogenes Club in the BBC series is actually the British Academy, the United Kingdom's national body for humanities and social sciences. The Academy was established in 1902 and today has about a thousand fellow scholars in social sciences. Research and academic programs of the Academy are largely funded by regular multi-million grants from the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills.
funds are used for research projects in social sciences, both in the UK and abroad. The Academy is registered as a charity and actively encourages rising scholars from around the world to come and contribute to the field of social sciences in the UK. During the first two decades, the Academy did not have a building of its own. Its first offices were in some rented rooms at Burlington Gardens and continued relocating over the next several years. The Academy moved into the current building at 10 Carlton House Terrace in 1998. Number 11 Carlton House was added to the Academy recently in 2010 when the administration decided to restore the building through a £2.75 million project and link it with number 10. The renovation also added a 150-seat public auditorium to the building. Both buildings are a prime example of Georgian architecture and their use in Sherlock demonstrates the power and authority Mycroft has in the British government. The design of the buildings was done by John Nash, the renowned architect who designed much of the Regency, including Buckingham Palace and the Royal Pavilion. Choosing the correct architecture to portray the intelligence agency Mycroft heads was pivotal to properly convey his status to the audience. Coupled with the very slick black Jaguar cars that shuttle Mycroft around, the producers effectively get his authority across the screen. Please take the wide pedestrian way in front of the Duke of York column. This will lead you to the Mall. The Houses of Parliament were at the centre of the plot in the first Sherlock movie starring Robert Downey Jr. and in the Empty Hearse episode of Sherlock's third series on the BBC. The inspiration for both plots comes from the infamous gunpowder plot of 1605. This conspiracy, which involved Guy Fawkes, is perhaps the most famous incident associated with the Palace of Westminster. The plan was to detonate a large quantity of gunpowder under the Parliament on state opening on the 5th of November and assassinate most of the ruling aristocracy of Britain. However, the plan got discovered before it could be executed. In the Empty Hearse episode of Sherlock, Lord Moran had a similar plan of detonating an explosive-laden train carriage under the Palace of Westminster as a hearing on a new anti-terrorism bill is in progress. Guy Ritchie's Sherlock movie saw a similar plot to assassinate members of the Parliament. In the movie, Lord Blackwood plots to kill everyone in the Parliament except his supporters by releasing a poisonous gas through the ventilation. Holmes discovers the machine which produces the gas beneath the palace and prevents Blackwood's plan from following through. The chamber where the Parliament convenes is called the Chamber of the House of Commons. The current chamber was opened in 1950, after undergoing extensive renovation. German bombing raids of the Second World War had heavily damaged the Palace of Westminster. Like most parliaments of the Commonwealth nations, the interior furnishings are green. Members of the public are not allowed to sit on the benches as they are only for elected members. Even the British monarch does not enter the House of Commons a tradition that dates back almost 400 years. In the state opening of Parliament, the doors are symbolically shut on a representative of the monarch, traditionally called Black Rod. After three knocks, Black Rod is admitted inside 
where he summons the elected members of Parliament to attend. The House of Commons is relatively small and can only seat about two-thirds of the MPs. During major debates, MPs have to stand at either end of the chamber in order to attend. The ticketing office provides informative guides for tourists to visit Westminster. Entry to the Palace of Westminster costs £25 per adult and is free for children. Visitors can attend debates on almost all days and can tour inside the Houses of Parliament on Saturdays. In front of the building is the famous revolving New Scotland Yard sign. Scotland Yard has become the most popular name for the London Metropolitan Police. It comes from a street called Great Scotland Yard, where the Metropolitan Police Headquarters was originally located. The Metropolitan Police was formed in 1829 by Robert Peel, a statesman who went on to become the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Scotland Yard earned its popularity through the many crime stories written by British and foreign writers about London. With television and movies, Scotland Yard became even more popular. BBC Sherlock series extensively feature Inspector Lestrade and other officers from Scotland Yard. During series two, we get to see the sensitive relationship Sherlock has with the police force. Interestingly, the nationwide IT system housed in the new Scotland Yard building is named HOMES, an abbreviation for Home Office Large Major Enquiry System. The officer's training program for the database is called Elementary. Because of the high security, visitors are not allowed inside and are discouraged from spending too much time near the building. Therefore, please view the building from the outside and then we will move on to our next destination. With a triangular New Scotland Yard sign to your back, please proceed up Broadway Street to your right. You will spot an entrance to St James's Park Station to your left. This confirms that you're going in the right direction. The Wellington Barracks was a central location featured in the second episode of the latest Sherlock series. At the centre of the story was the plot to murder John Watson's previous military commander and the unexplained attempted murder of a guardsman called Bainbridge at Wellington Barracks. A significant part of the episode shows Sherlock and Watson investigating the attempt on the guardsman and the barracks get a fair amount of screen time. The Wellington Barracks were completed in 1833 and still stand today. However, the guard's chapel was damaged during the Second World War and rebuilt afterwards. The barracks currently house the Grenadier Guards. With the Buckingham Palace just next to it, the guards can be summoned at the shortest notice. Apart from the fictional happenings of the barracks shown in Sherlock, Wellington Barracks has recently had a real-world incident as well. Last year, newspapers reported that a clerk at the Ministry of Defence impersonated a Royal Marine and lived illegally in the barracks for two years. The impersonator was exposed after the barracks administration carried out checks after a noisy party. Although the event was embarrassing, it was luckily not a serious security concern.
the main section for visitors in the Wellington Barracks is the Guards Museum. It documents about 300 years of history of the foot guards. This includes the evolution of the famous uniforms, the various roles of the guards, and numerous artifacts collected over the years. The entrance to the Guards Museum is where Bainbridge is seen on duty in the Sherlock episode. However, the entrance does not have any official guards in reality. The Guards Museum is open from 10am to 4pm daily. Adults are charged £5, while children under 16 can visit free of charge. Our Sherlock-themed tour of London ends here. Thank you for experiencing this easy travel audio tour. For more great themed tours of London, please select from our list of stories. We wish you a warm stay in London. Goodbye.